Last week, we saw that the birth of Jesus wasn't really the cute, cozy event that it's often portrayed to be. It was, in fact, the beginning of a revolution, a revolution that would change everything forever. Uh, In amongst the usual kerfuffle of Christmas, uh, most of which has nothing to do with Christmas, it's easy to miss the fact that the birth of Jesus is an event of monumental importance. Jesus is a king. He's the king of kings who came to establish an everlasting kingdom. Jesus was a king from the moment of his birth, and his kingdom clashed with the kingdom of this world even when he was in his infancy, which is what today's passage is all about. So Jesus came to bring this revolutionary new kingdom. And if there's one thing we all know about revolutions is that they bring change. Some people welcome change. Other people will do anything to resist change. Change or a disruption in the status quo often evokes very strong emotions. And the bigger the change, the stronger the emotions. So when Google changes the format of your email, you might think, this is great, this is so much better. Or you might think, I wish they'd just left this alone. Small change, small emotion. If you're going on holiday and your flight is cancelled, that in the overall scheme of things is a relatively small change, but it evokes pretty strong emotions. Changing jobs or moving house, they're bigger changes. And uh, those things can be exciting and stressful all at the same time. There can be a lot of emotions wrapped up in these kind of events, very normal events. We respond emotionally to changes. And Jesus coming into the world more than 2,000 years ago precipitated the most significant changes ever. That's why the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has always evoked such strong and often polarized emotions. And we see this in today's passage. Matthew describes three ways that people respond to Jesus. Hatred, indifference, and worship. And when it comes to our culture today, most people will respond to Jesus in one of these ways. Hatred, indifference, or worship. Uh, So let's look at each of these responses in turn. So Matthew tells this story that has become so familiar. Uh, If there's any Bible story that most people in the country will know something about, it's this one. Uh, Three magi or wise men or kings from the east, they follow a star, they travel to Jerusalem in uh, Judea, And they go to King Herod asking, where can they find the one who has been born king of the Jews? So what do we know about these magi? Well, we don't know a huge amount, but I think we can rule out their being kings, because Matthew doesn't say that. Uh, If we interpret the word magi as wise men, astrologers, men of great learning, then I think we're on the right track. Uh, We don't know how many there were. We're so used to hearing that there were uh, three, and they're often given names, Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, but we don't know how many there were, and we certainly don't know their names. We know, of course, that there were three gifts that Matthew mentions, uh, but that doesn't mean that there were three wise men. And when we hear of them following a star, our imaginations are in danger 
of carrying us off into a children's story rather than a historical event. Just to put this in context, it's worth knowing that in 44 BC, when Julius Caesar died, uh, a new star, uh, a a nova, appeared uh, in the sky immediately above his funeral pyre. Uh, That was, I believe, pure chance, uh, a remarkable coincidence, but it was, of course, interpreted that Caesar had gone to join the pantheon of Roman gods. Uh, From that point on, and possibly before then, stars were associated with great men. Add to that the fact that there was a rumor in the first century that world dominion would come out of Judea. People were beginning to say that Judea would give rise to powerful rulers whose empire would be universal. The Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius record this rumor, as does the Jewish historian Josephus. So it's very well documented. Where did it come from? We don't know. Uh, Most amazingly of all, an inscription has been found in an ancient Babylonian observatory that records a remarkable event that occurred three times uh, during the year Uh, that um, Jesus was most likely born, an event that occurred in the night sky. I say uh, when Jesus was most likely born because we don't have an exact date for Jesus' birth. Uh, We live in the year 2018 AD, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, 2018 years after the birth of Christ. But uh, that date is almost certainly a miscalculation, albeit only by a few years. Uh, But this event that was recorded, uh, this event that occurred in the night sky in the particular year, is the coming together of Jupiter and Saturn in the area of the sky known as Pisces. And this would give the impression of an extra bright star in that part of the sky. Well, Pisces was thought to mark the end of the sun's old course and the beginning of its new. So, Uh, Pisces is associated with new beginnings. Jupiter was the royal planet, so it'd be natural to associate a king with Jupiter. And Saturn had long been the symbol for Israel. So when we consider all these facts together, it's not at all far-fetched to think of a group of stargazing wise men following a star to Judea in the hope of finding a king. This is very plausible. And of course, if a king was to be born in Judea, uh, the obvious place would be Jerusalem. And so they go to King Herod and they ask, where is the one to be born king of the Jews? Now, we don't know a lot about these magi, but we know a great deal about King Herod, Herod the Great. Herod was a cruel and bloodthirsty megalomaniac. He has to be one of the most malevolent characters in all of human history. In his efforts to cling on to power, he murdered his own wife and three of his own children, uh, his sons. Uh, When he was on his deathbed, he arranged for all the most prominent men of Jerusalem to be rounded up and imprisoned, and he gave orders that they should be executed on the day that he actually died because he wanted to ensure that the whole of Jerusalem would be in mourning on the day of his death. He was a complete psychopath. And Herod was known 
as the king of the Jews. So this entourage arrive at Herod's palace asking, where is the one to be born king of the Jews? And incidentally, we won't hear that title again in Matthew's gospel until we get to Jesus's crucifixion. But you can imagine how King Herod received that question from those magi. As far as he was concerned, someone was trying to usurp him and his heart filled with hatred and even more paranoia than was there before. Verse 3 says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. If Herod was unhappy, everyone was on edge. When I was training for the Royal Marines, we lived in these accommodation blocks and our training team would have an office in the block. And if someone walked past the office and heard uh, an animated, angry sounding conversation coming from within the office, that news would spread around the troop in about five seconds. The training team are unhappy about something, and then uh, we'd all be bracing ourselves for the consequences, bracing ourselves for something awful. Well, if someone like King Herod was disturbed, you can imagine how quickly that news would leak out of the palace and all around Jerusalem, and the effect that that would have on people. They would be very uncomfortable, wondering what was going to come next. So Herod's response to Jesus is hatred, because as far as Herod is concerned, Jesus is a threat. Jesus threatens to topple him from his throne. In Herod's mind, there is only room for one king, and that's him. And as we've seen, he'd do anything to hold on to power. Later in Matthew's gospel, uh, we hear of the murder of the innocents, where Herod ordered uh, all of the children of the, the baby boys under the age of two in Bethlehem uh, to be killed. Uh, and that is entirely consonant with what we know of King Herod. So that's Herod. But many people today hate Jesus. And that's often because they don't want to be toppled from the throne of their lives. In fact, that's true of all of us to some extent. This is the problem of sin that is so clearly uh, exposed in the Bible. We want to be autonomous. We don't want anyone telling us how to live our lives, not even God. Our problem can be summarized in one sentence. I want to do what I want. The problem is the things that we want to do are so often harmful for us. And God wants to protect us, but we don't want to listen. We think we know what's best for us. We want total control over our lives. And we see that, don't we? We see that with people of all ages. Uh, the the uh, children who resent the adult that puts a stop to the dangerous game that they're playing. The game has been stopped because it's dangerous, but the children don't see that. They just see the adult as a, a, a real killjoy. Teenagers challenged about drug use or promiscuity or whatever, they, they, might, they might blurt out, it's my life, I can do what I want. Well, if we give our allegiance to Jesus, we can no longer say that because it's not our life, it belongs to Jesus. 
adults who have become set in their ways, and we've all become set in our ways in some respects. You know, you, you try telling an adult who's been performing an exercise in the gym incorrectly for the last 20 years, try telling them that, well, what they're doing isn't actually doing them much good. Uh, they really don't want to hear it. We want to be the highest authority in our life. We don't want to listen. We don't want there to be a king to whom we owe our allegiance. Herod had a kingdom that he didn't want to lose control of, but so do we. We set ourselves up as king or queen of our life, and we don't want to cede control of it. Not that we're ever really in control anyway. One way or another, Jesus will topple us from our thrones. How do we respond to that? Do we respond with hatred or do we respond in some other way? So Herod hears about this rival king and he hates him. And this hatred leads to an evil plan. He calls uh, the chief priests and the teachers of the law uh, together. Uh, I think we can assume that the wise men uh, aren't part of this conversation. He wants to know where this child will be born. And they quote the prophet Micah saying, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod holds a secret meeting, uh, calls these wise men back in, and he sends them to Bethlehem to pinpoint where this child is. Now, Herod has to deal with this in quite a, a surgical way because he doesn't want this child, this potential king, to slip through the net. Uh, but what's really remarkable is the passive role that the chief priests and teachers of the law play in all this. Israel were eagerly awaiting the arrival of the anointed one, the Messiah. And if anyone was qualified to recognize and interpret these events, it was the chief priests and teachers of the law. They were the nation's spiritual leaders. They should have been keener than anyone to verify this wonderful news. This large entourage had arrived in Jerusalem, having traveled more than a thousand miles to get there in the expectation that they were going to find a newborn king. This was exciting stuff, and the scribes barely react. In today's work environment, they'd be guilty of gross negligence. They seem to be completely indifferent. And this brings us to the next of our three responses to Jesus, indifference. In our culture, this is perhaps the most common response to Jesus. Uh, indifference is encapsulated by the phrase, whatever. We've all heard that, haven't we? Yeah, whatever. It's good for you, but it's not for me. Whatever makes you happy. Each to his own. We hear those expressions all the time, but they're illogical. If Christianity is false, then it's not good news for anyone. And if it's true, then it's of vital importance to everyone. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Whatever one's perspective, it can't be denied that Jesus has had and continues to have a huge impact in the world we live, him, live in. It's intellectually irresponsible to dismiss Jesus with a, yeah, whatever. It's hard to reason with the person 
who is genuinely indifferent because that person won't care uh, if you're telling the truth or not. Uh, That's why I'm often more hopeful about those who are vehemently opposed to Jesus and the church. Now, that can be because they've had a bad experience with the church, and that's tragic if that's the case, uh, and we could understand uh, their, their perspective. Uh, but it may also be an indication that deep down a person knows that Jesus has a legitimate claim on their lives and are resisting that. So the chief priests and teachers of the law didn't go in search of this newborn king, but were they really indifferent? More than likely, they feared for their lives. Uh, King Herod had already executed more than half the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council on which the chief priests uh, would have sat. So what appears to be indifference, and many Bible commentators couch it in those terms, is probably fear. And I wonder how much of the indifference about Jesus in our culture is fear masquerading as indifference. Perhaps people fear what others might think of them if they even start to look into this, if they start to ask questions about faith and Christianity and Jesus. Perhaps people fear what they might discover if they do start to look into this. You know, what if I look into this and I find that it's true? I'm going to have to do something about it, and that's going to mean change. Best just leave this alone. Pretend I don't care. I wonder how much of the indifference in our culture is people putting their fingers in their ears and going, la, 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 I don't want to hear about God or Jesus or any of that. I just don't want to know. Are people really indifferent, or is it that they don't want to risk discovering, they fear discovering that there is a king There is a higher authority to whom they owe their allegiance. Well, the good news is this. If we search for Jesus, we will find him. And yes, if we invite him into our lives, it will mean big changes, wonderful changes, lasting changes, eternal changes, changes that we will never, ever regret. The wise men searched for Jesus, and they found him in Bethlehem, just as the prophets foretold, which brings us to the last of our three responses that we're looking at this morning, which is worship. Verses 10 to 11 say this, When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They discovered Jesus, they were overjoyed, and they worshipped him. Surely that should be the pattern for all believers. When we discover Jesus, we discover the very reason that we've been created. For the wise men, uh, discovering Jesus was, in a sense, the end of their journey. For us, it's just the beginning, the beginning of a new life with Jesus. Not necessarily an easy life, but a fulfilling life, packed with meaning and purpose. But notice that the first thing the wise men did was to worship Jesus. In humble adoration, they bowed down before the king of kings, who was just a toddler at the time, no more than two years old. The wise men gave their hearts before they gave their gifts. And we must do the same. Let me say that again. The wise men gave their hearts before they gave their gifts. And we must do the same. You know, it's no good pastors telling their congregations 
that they ought to be more committed, that they ought to give their time and their energy and their money, because if those people have not given their hearts to Jesus, they won't do it. And if they try to do it, they won't be able to sustain it. It will just be another fad. What really matters is that we give our whole hearts to Jesus, that we give our allegiance to Jesus, because then our gifts follow and they are joyfully and gratefully given. Jesus told this parable. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. We give up everything for Jesus because Jesus gave up everything for us. And what we find in Jesus is of infinite value because it lasts forever. If we seek Jesus, we will find him. And when we find him, the only right and proper response is our joyful and wholehearted worship. And when it's established that Jesus is king of our lives, when we're willing to bow the knee and worship Jesus, then we lay our gifts before him. We say, here is everything I have to offer. Do with it as you will. So we have these three common responses to Jesus. Uh, the, the responses that we see uh, that Matthew recorded uh, from 2,000 years ago or more. They're the same responses that people in our culture will have today. Hatred, indifference, or worship. But only the latter, only worship leads to eternal life. So let us worship Jesus today and forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do confess that we love you and we worship you. Uh, but we also recognize that there are so many distractions in our lives, so much stuff going on, that before we know it, if we're not careful, you, you end up getting moved to the margins of our lives. And we pray, Father, that we can keep correcting this, that we can, we can keep turning back to you, bowing before you in worship, offering our gifts, offering all that we are to be used by you to build your kingdom in this place. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we go into 2019, uh, we will be totally focused on you and be willing to bring our gifts to you this year. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.